Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. My name is Scott. This is my wife, Kim. The first candle of Advent is the candle of hope. As we await the fulfillment of God's promises, we live in the tension of now and not yet, discouragement and hope, darkness and light, death and life. But even as we linger in the darkness and the waiting, God has not left us alone. Christmas means that every word God ever spoke came to us wrapped in swaddling clothes. Every promise God ever whispered to us arrived in human flesh. The word of God in a manger in our very hearts. God of hope, please whisper your words into our hearts. When our silent night feels dark and lonely, may we hear you in quiet whispers until the day your glory is shattered from the skies. The story of Serve the World really begins decades ago with uh, Chapel Street's commitment to missions. There was a growing commitment to what Chapel Street could do around the world. How could we be more involved in what God was doing around the world? Somewhere in all that, the idea bubbled up. Uh, might have been somewhere between Dave LeVan, Bruce McAvoy, and me to take that phrase, Serve the World, and create that as our mission's emphasis. We started with that concept, almost like a what if we could do this and we wanted it to truly create a deeper connection for the congregation, not just the money, not just, hey, let's raise money, because God's got all the money anyway, but can we use this to connect people to kingdom work in just a more deep and meaningful way? But we had a problem, and that was uh, while all this interest was growing and we wanted more and more people to get involved in missions, we struggled to um, fund all the things we wanted to fund because we had one church budget and there was a slice in that church budget for missions and it was really hard to grow that like we wanted to grow it because to grow the little slice of missions in the church budget you had to take away from other budgets like children's ministry or worship ministries so we were, we were stuck how do we get more people involved in missions how do we grow our whole missions emphasis and how do we fund it in a stronger way than we ever have before and it was pastor brian that said what if we created a a separate and distinct fund that people could give to that we could then re-gift and redistribute. And I thought, genius. And we were nervous about that because we were afraid that when you create a separate bucket, bucket other than your, than your church budget, your general fund, that people will just kind of rob Peter to pay Paul to take money out of here and then give it to there. But actually what happened was people gave more and we realized that Serve the World now accomplished both purposes of helping more people see it as something they were involved with, and it created the a, a bucket where people could give. Just watching the congregation engage with the different ministries in a deeper, more meaningful, more impactful way, and deepen their heart and their love for a group of people struggling with AIDS in a remote part of northern Nigeria or uh, in a youth camp in El Refugio in Ecuador. One of the gifts I remember very early was to invest in a skateboard park in Quito, Ecuador. This group of kids I don't feel like is, uh, is hearing uh, the, the life-saving message of, of Jesus Christ anywhere else and the Lord has just has given us a wonderful opportunity. Es impresionante lo que puede hacer Dios. Puso, puso en mi camino a Brock the Rock Skate Church, and my life changed totally. 
when you meet people who are living and serving in different parts of the world and you share kind of fellowship that is really powerful and unique. It kind of took what was my interest into and a desire that I had to, to work for a Christian nonprofit and it really like fueled that fire. What Serve the World has done for me is given me God's heart for the world. And, and that would be a, a hope for Chapel Street, that we would all be on a journey to have more of an understanding of God's heart for the nations. Uh, I love that video, and it really is, um, reminds me, I, I had forgotten about a number of those ministry partners over the last 10 years, seeing those images from La Roca uh, Skate Church and the work, I've, I've been there and I've seen and I've seen people coming off the streets to come hear the gospel and having their lives transformed, seeing people get baptized and how God's generosity here um, helped the gospel be made known, be tangible, um, both in our local community and then really ultimately around the world. If you're new with us, um, you may not have heard of, of Serve the World before. As the story they just told shares, it, it was a desire and intent to have a, uh, not only a giving mechanism, but really an, an activation amongst the Chapel Street church community to be involved in the work of the gospel, um, both in our own neighborhood and then globally. And so uh, during Advent every year, we have traditionally, what we've done is we have highlighted one of those partners, one of those needs. You re may remember last year at this time, we started telling you the story of this school in Africa, and a really uh, different, difficult part of the world um, where there was very little hope and how this school was making um, hope realized. People were experiencing it both in education, but, but far more in relationship. And we had this audacious, what I felt like at the time was sort of like, we're overshooting here. Um, goal of raising $500,000 to expand the school, to double their impact. And, um, and we put that ask out in, in front of the church. And over the course of December and beginning of January, the church responded um, with over $600,000 of, of resources to help that kingdom vision advance there. And not only that kingdom vision, but then others like it, other ministry partners. In fact, over the last 12 months, there's been approximately 20 ministry partners like Cure, like Naomi's House, like La Roca, um, like Life Water that we saw in the video number of these partners who have been invested in out of serve the world funds because of of your generosity and so this year kind of right around our 10-year anniversary of serve the world instead of just selecting one ministry partner that we're going to highlight as kind of an example of what serve the world does we've decided to try to tell the whole larger story um, of serve the world and and how that generosity is is making a difference. And again, we have a goal this year. Um, our stated goal for, for Advent giving for Serve the World is $300,000 this year. And I want to tell you, I think we can, I think we can beat that. Um, across all four campuses, I just um, am trusting God and, and looking forward to how he moves among his people to continue to advance 
these very practical, tangible expressions of of the gospel of his kingdom in the hearts and lives of these ministries. And so this Advent season, I'm asking you to be thinking and praying about what you or your family might be able to give. Again, this is a giving that is above and beyond our regular giving here at Chapel Street. And, uh, and what you guys might be able to do, you can do that online. Um, you can do that through our app. Um, or of course, you can do that in person here. If you write serve the world on the memo line of, of the check, all of those funds will go to serve the world. And all the funds that go to serve the world go out to our, our ministry partners. These are not funds that are used here kind of in-house at Chapel Street, but go to support our partners in our own community uh, and then ultimately uh, around the world as well. Um, today we are beginning our series, our Advent series, our celebration of Advent together. And this is a season uh, of the year that I just um, love. I love the music. I love the decorations. I love the tradition. I love um, all of it. And, and I love going through it with you. And the very word uh, Advent um, means literally like a, a arrival, um, coming. There's this sense of anticipation that, that the word evokes and invites us into. And so during this month, we as a church, we want to try to create space where we can enter into that sense of waiting. But not just any waiting, it was a waiting that was defined by hope as generation after generation of those who, who looked forward to the arrival of the Messiah um, continued to wait for the, the promise of God to be fulfilled. The promise of God that would ultimately be answered and realized in the person of Jesus. And so as a church, we, we do both, right? We want to come into this season and we want to be mindful of, thankful of um, God's provision of a Messiah, a Savior who has come. But we also approach it in our own sense of waiting, our own waiting that is, is defined by hope as we are a people that are looking forward to the day when he is going to return. And he's going to reign and his kingdom is going to be implemented in full. And there's going to be justice and, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we, we are a people between the advents as we are trusting and placing our faith in the Messiah who came and looking forward to when he is going to return again and reign as our king. So this year... Over these four weeks together in December, we're going to focus our time together in, in um, John's gospel. And really, I think his somewhat unique take on or proclamation of the arrival of, of Jesus and how he, he attempts to describe Jesus or to introduce us to Jesus. And he does so with these, these words, these, these terms that he applies to to the one who has come, who has arrived. And that is, he describes him as the word, as the light, as the life, and ultimately in verse 14 as, as the glory. So each week when we gather, we're going to read this passage from John chapter 1. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, let's turn there and let's read these words together. This is John's prologue. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pause there. I want you to think about a moment when you have tried to explain or introduce somebody to somebody who has not yet met that person, right? I, I can still remember the day when uh, I, I called my parents. I was in college. This is when you had a phone that was attached to a wall, and there was a long cord, um, and, and your roommate basically heard everything you were saying, and I called to tell them I had met a girl, right? And I, I'm, I'm introducing them to Sherry with them having never met her. And I'm explaining how, um, how kind and generous and, and um, how beautiful she is and how I'm, I'm talking about how she makes me laugh. And even better than that, she laughs at, at my jokes and um, at least she used to, like for, <laughs> that wears off over time. And um, and I, I'm trying, like, you feel like as you do this, if you've experienced this, like, I'm not doing this person justice. But then there's also this, this sense in you that's like, I can't wait for you to meet them. Or I can't wait for you to meet them. That's John chapter 1. Is, is John's prologue is introducing us to Jesus. And he, he does so. He's like, I, just, I can't wait for you to meet him. Um, and, and all four in the New Testament, there are four different biographies of the life of Jesus, four accounts of his ministry. And each one of those four accounts begins differently. You may have noticed that. In, in Matthew's gospel, which is a gospel that a lot of times we go to during Advent, Matthew begins with a genealogy. He, he says, I, I, wanna, I want to introduce you to Jesus by taking you all the way back through the line of David and not only at David, but, but all the way back to Abraham, so you can understand how the prophecies have been pointing us to Jesus all along. If you remember Mark's gospel, Mark skips the birth narrative altogether. He's like, I'm gonna, we're going to start on page one with John the Baptist declaring the way, and we're going to see him baptize Jesus. Luke's approach, Luke begins his gospel by, by um, approaching it like a historian. He, he says, I want, you, I want to talk to you about my purpose and I want to talk to you about my process and, and so that you can have confidence in the account that you're reading. In fact, he says in Luke's gospel, he says, I myself have carefully investigated from the beginning and I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
So he says, I, I have talked to the eyewitnesses. I've heard I've, the people who are there, and I'm writing it down so that you can have a trustworthy account of who Jesus is and what he did. But John, John uniquely begins with this prologue. And his prologue is, before I get into the story of Jesus, before we talk about his life and his ministry, you need to understand who he is. Right? And he crafts this, this poetic and artistic introduction to Jesus. And as he goes back, he, he doesn't stop at King David and he doesn't stop at Abraham. He says, if we're going to understand who Jesus is, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. We, we, we've got to go back together to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where he connects the story of Jesus, not only to the Old Testament, but in fact to God, to Yahweh himself. According to uh, some recent research that I read, there is a wide range of opinions and perspectives on who Jesus is in, in our culture. Um, there, there are many, in fact, upwards of 80% who would affirm that Jesus is a historical figure he lived and, and walked the earth and taught. Many would also ascribe to him a degree of kind of like spiritual authority or he's, a, he's an important moral teacher in our world. Where the agreement begins to fray is when you start to talk about what that means. So if you start to apply terms to Jesus like savior, then culturally kind of there's less comfortability, less sort of like, conviction as it relates to that aspect of Jesus. If, if you talk about his deity, was he the fully the son of God? Like uh, people are like, yeah, the, uh, important moral teacher, yes. God in the flesh, maybe not so much. If you talk about his kingship and, and his reign, like again, like those, there's, there's all kinds of different perspectives and opinions on the person of Jesus. And, and I'm venturing to guess if you've had conversations with neighbors or coworkers, friends, family members, whoever, you've seen that, you've experienced that. I'm sure that's true even here this morning. But what I want you to understand is that that was also true when John wrote this. People had, uh, it was one of the later gospels, people had formed some opinions, some ideas, they'd heard the stories about Jesus, they had some ideas, and there was conflicting sense of, of who he was. And so as he begins to tell the story of Jesus, he says, I need to place this in a, a bigger context, a fuller understanding. If, if we're going to understand the Jesus that John is introducing to us, then we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. And in doing so, John introduces us and introduces his original readers, his original audience, to the one who is the Word. The one who is the word. If we had read all the way through verse 18 in John's uh, prologue, his introduction to Jesus, we notice that there is a pattern that, that begins to unfold here. He, he makes the connection on the identity of Jesus into two critical moments in God's relationship with humanity. The first one may, may appear obvious to us. It's, he takes it all the way back to the creation narrative and this Genesis imagery in verses 1 through 3. But then in verse 14, he refers to the, the arriving of the Word, the one who has 
come and, and taken on flesh, and now he connects it to an Exodus imagery. He connects Jesus to the tabernacle, to God dwelling with his people. And so in each of these cases, he introduces Jesus, he uses this imagery, and says, I want to take you all the way back into creation, all the way back into the tabernacle. And then what immediately follows that in verses 6 through 8, and then again in verse 15, is this sort of eyewitness testimony from John the Baptist. He cites John the Baptist, who bears witness to who Jesus is. And then again, in each case, after that, what you notice is there is a response. There is a receiving that comes with this introduction, this understanding of the word. In verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. In verse 16, it says, we, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. So here's here's what I want us to understand. Jesus In John's gospel, he's saying Jesus is the reality that the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. He takes these experiences and and their storied past, and he connects it to Jesus. It's all been leading to Jesus. And not only has it all been leading to Jesus, but when we encounter him, when we're introduced to him, it requires, it evokes a, a response or a receiving. You may have noticed this, but it, it kind of culturally, um, in like the movies, there's been this trend lately. I think like they're just out of good ideas, basically. And so they, they take a, something that is done well, right? And then they'll be like, well, let's just make a prequel. Let's, let's go back and tell you sort of the story before the story. And so this, around Thanksgiving, they, they did the Hunger Games series, made all kinds of money. People read the books, watched the movies. And they're like, we can do this again. And so we'll go back and we'll tell you the story of how this specific character right, came to be who they are in the story that you know. Like my kids call this like um, the, uh, an origin story movie. Like you're hearing, okay, people are nodding. That's right. Good. Um, you're hearing the story that led them to this place. And here... In this instance, John, as he introduces us to Jesus, he wants to give us the backstory. He, he wants us to give us the origin story. And in this case, the origin story is creation itself. So let's take a few moments to, to think about these images that, that John evokes and connects Jesus to. And the first one is the creative word or the, or, or the word at creation. The word at creation. When I was in uh, middle school, um, my, my mom, when, when my mom and dad got married young and my dad finished college, my mom dropped out and, and started to raise us kids. And so when we were all back in like full-time school, she went and finished her education and became a math teacher, middle school math teacher. And when I was in middle school, my mom did her student teaching and then ultimately was a regular substitute teacher in my middle school, right? So middle school is hard enough as it is. Uh, having your mom there as the sub is, is a challenge. And if you're like, if you can enter into the brain of a middle school uh, boy, when you hear you're going to have a substitute teacher in class, the immediate thing that, that goes off for you is like, okay, this is not the teacher. This is, they're there on behalf of the teacher, 
They're there representing the teacher, but they're not the teacher, so I'm going to see what I can get away with. Like, that was the plan. The problem was, my mom had already raised three boys, so she was well-equipped for those moments, and I, I can still remember sitting in a middle school class, some friends, like, sitting around me, talking, and said, hey, there's a substitute later on, and somebody asking, like, oh, who's the substitute in that class? And I'm going, Mrs. Moore, and this guy goes, oh, I, you know, I was just kind of like, sorry, man, like, see, the, the reason I raise this is because the prevailing idea, understanding of who the Messiah would be, was that he would be there to represent God. He would act on behalf of God. He, he would serve as a proxy, maybe a messenger for God. But John begins his gospel by correcting this and saying Jesus is not just a reduced or limited version of the real thing. Right, John, John wants to leave no room for confusion, uh, confusion on this point. Look again at how he begins in verses 1 through 3. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So John, he writes in such a way that it, it in, is in designed to intentionally echo in our brains Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Right? The, Tim Mackey and the, the Bible Project people, they refer to this as a, as a hyperlink. We're, we're supposed to read it and immediately our brains go back to a previous story. He's making the connection. And if you grew up in a, in a household where you were being taught the Torah day in and day out, even more so, you read what John writes here and you go, okay, this is, this is rooted in Genesis 1, verse 1. So he's connecting Jesus and he's connecting him as in this moment in, in their history, in their story, that is this unique and powerful display of God's capacity in ability, right? He was there in the beginning. In fact, flip with me real quick back to Genesis chapter one. Notice the correlation here. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Verse three, then God said, he evokes his word, let there be light, and there was light. So as John introduces his readers to Jesus, he takes them back to this moment at the very center of creation, and he places Jesus in the event. A moment that, that perhaps like any other, put on display the power, the life-giving ability of Yahweh. When God, out of nothing, spoke the cosmos into being. And he introduces Jesus and he places him in the scene, but not as one who is an observer or a bystander. He's putting them there as the one who is doing the creating. And think about those moments when, when you've tried, again, to explain who somebody is by what they've done in the past. Uh, I have a friend here who uh, attends our church and plays in our worship ministry and in like the 90s and, and they can continue to pre uh, perform but 
he was in a, a punk rock band that was pretty widely known. And, and oftentimes when I'm introducing him or explaining to somebody who he is, I'll reference his, his previous history. And they're like, oh, if they, if they followed that scene or were in that scene, they know immediately like, oh, this is what he's capable of. This is his ability. This is who he is. Like, this is what John does here. He takes us back so that we can understand What's happening now? John's choice here to describe Jesus, the arrival of him in this word, the one who is the word, it's the Greek word logos. It's not only a connotation that had uh, meaning for those who are hearing this and reading this, who are coming from a, a Jewish perspective or background, but he does so in such a way that it also um, speaks into those who are hearing and reading this from kind of a Greek background. In fact, I want to put up this, this definition of, of logos that was very common during the day, that John is evoking both from what he has said in Genesis 1-1 in the creation there, but also a, a terminology that was used commonly in Greek philosophy. This idea of a, a first principle of divine reason, the creative order. So in Greek philosophy, the, the philosophers would talk about the logos. It was used to describe um, ultimate reality or, or the organizing principle that gave life and meaning to the universe. But what was unique about it is the idea of the logos in philosophy was um, an impersonable force. So we like think more... Star Wars kind of idea here. This thing that is in the background, but, but isn't, isn't knowable, isn't something that you had a relationship with. So it's, it wasn't capable of knowing and being known, and because it's not capable of knowing and being known, it's also not capable of loving and being loved. So John here, and I think, I think John is, is, is very likely brilliant. He, he is speaking the language of his day. But it's more than just kind of this attempting to be culturally relevant and making a connection. He's actually taking the meaning of something and he's transforming it. And he says this logos, this, this organizing principle, the thing that is behind it all, the one that sustains it, he's saying this is a person and I want to introduce you to him. And his name is Jesus. John is... is not only saying is he capable of being loved, he is the very definition of love itself. And you can know him. And not only can you know him, but when you are introduced to him, he says there is a, he can be responded to, he can be received, or as we see in verses 11 and 12, he can be received and he can be rejected. John takes both the, the, the Jewish reader and, and the person who has kind of a Greek uh, worldview, a perspective or mindset, and he reveals to them Jesus as the Word, the one who was with God and who was God. He is the eternal one, the uncreated creator, the divine, who was in the beginning to borrow from from the Apostle Paul in Colossians, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's the Word. The organizing person, 
behind all things. And now John says the word, the logos, has taken on flesh and bone. He's become one of us. The, the innocence and the vulnerability of a, of a child born into abject poverty, so much so that where they laid him was an animal's feeding trough, is in no way a limited or reduced version of the real thing. He's making this, this articulate and beautiful point that he is the fullness of God entering into human experience. To bring, as John's going to describe, and as we're going to talk about over the next two weeks, he, he, to bring light and to bring life. Again, these two intentional sort of hyperlinks back to Genesis. As John begins his gospel, he wants to make sure that we, we connect the story of Jesus into the larger context, that we know whose story we're reading. And he says he is the one who was with God and he is the one who was God. Which then brings us to this, this second connection that, that John makes from the Old Testament. And this one's found in the book of Exodus. This is the, the dwelling word. The dwelling word. Look again back in, in verse 14 here. John says this at the beginning of that verse. He says, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Right? Once again, Jesus is in, or John is introducing Jesus to us as the Word, and this time he connects it to his capacity and desire to dwell with his people. So now, now again, as we read this, we're taken back instantly into to Exodus, where God is delivering his law for his people, and as he gives them the law, he begins to explain how they're going to experience his presence with them. And it's going to happen in, in, in the tabernacle. In fact, real quickly, just flip over to Exodus chapter 25. So this is after God has delivered the, the Ten Commandments to the people. He's given them instruction on, on how they are going to relate to each other uh, across humanity and how they're going to relate to him. And this is what he says in Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9. He says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. That's the tabernacle. And you must make it according to all that I show you. The pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of its furnishings. He's saying I, I, this word is the word who came to dwell to be present with us. I think this, is one, this idea, this concept is one of those things that we feel most acutely at this time of year. Oftentimes, if you're watching the news right now, one of the things that they'll do is, is they'll capture the story of a mom or a dad who serves in the military and whose child doesn't know that they're going to be on leave for Christmas. And so the school will set up an assembly and they're doing stuff and, and uh, the doors will swing open and the mom or dad who's been away sometimes for months or longer comes through the door and the child sees them and they just go running to them and they grab them in their arms, right? And if you're watching the news and you aren't crying in that moment, you are dead inside. Like, you, <laughs> like it gets you every single time because there's this, the, the sense in which with, right, matters how that changes things. Even as a, as a parent who just has college students who are away, 
for a good chunk of the fall, right? And then I know there's this window, this season I have where they're going to be home and we're all going to be together. Here's what John is teaching us about Jesus is he is the fullness of God who has come to be with us. We're going we're gonna to return to verse 14 on Christmas Eve and we're going to focus a little more in on, on what it means when John describes him as the glory. But for now, I, I want to just kind of hover in on the connection that John is making as it relates to Jesus and the one who dwells. That word that's translated as, as dwelt there and there literally means to live in a tent. And in other words, he's saying this God who spoke creation into being the God who with the very power of his word has everything that we see, everything that exists, he formed it and shaped it with his word has come to be with us. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was made possible through the tabernacle. So his, his glory and his holiness took up residence with his people. If you uh, read the following chapters in, in Exodus, what you see is how God establishes all sorts of protocols and standards, guardrails that he puts in place because if you were to sort of unintentionally walk in and, and be exposed to the glory of God, if you were to come into his holiness, you would be undone. You, you, would, you would be destroyed. But now in the person of Jesus, what was possible through the tabernacle is now formed and shaped and taken on in humanity. The same Logos, the one who is eternal, who created the universe with the power of his word, has taken up residence with us by becoming one of us. So just as God dwelt with the people of Israel in the desert, now he, dealt, he dwells with his people through a child born into a manger. In Jesus, the fullness of God takes up residence with humanity. John's saying the, the reality that the tabernacle was pointing us to is now here in the person of Jesus. One commentator said it this way, he says, hence the glory of God, once restricted to the tabernacle, is now made visible in Christ. The glory took up tangible form and was touched. As John introduces Jesus to his readers, he says he's the word. He's the fullness of the eternal creator God. And not only is he the fullness of the eternal creator God, he is the eternal creator God who has come to be with us. And he says this is his story. I want to introduce you to him. I want you to know him because he's come to have a relationship with you. Many of you, if you've driven by the, the, the Mill Creek campus at night, you've noticed that we put out this um, nativity that we set out there every, every year. Um, slightly historically inaccurate, uh, most likely. The, the wise men were probably not there at the birth scene, but we'll get past that. All right. Um, and, and displays like this, we put it out there because we, we, we love to tell this story. We love people to know. Um, and we hope that it's in some ways kind of just a, an invitation to our community to come celebrate Christmas with us. Um, but these 
nativity scenes get set up in living rooms and, and, and stores. Like sometimes you're even surprised by where you might see one of, of these scenes and they've become almost kind of culturally normative. But I think as we read John's prologue, as we understand, as he introduces us to Jesus, the point that he makes is I want you to understand who's in the manger. That I want you to understand that the story and the advent, the arrival of the king is the fullness of God who has come to dwell among you. He's the word. The word at creation and the word who is with us. And when Jesus was with his disciples, he gave them an image to to come back to, to be reminded of, a, a way to connect. And and when we celebrate the Lord's table, we are reminding ourselves once again of what Jesus has done on on our behalf. And I have always thought and felt that one of my favorite seasons to come to the Lord's table is during Advent. Because I think there's something so important about what we celebrate and what we remember and what ultimately came from it. And so in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and we'll have the opportunity to come to the table. If you are new with us this morning, um, just a quick a couple of notes. Is one is that this is not a Chapel Street thing. We don't, this table does not belong to us. It belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And um, if you are here and you've placed your faith in Jesus for forgiveness, um, if you're willing to allow the Holy Spirit to search you, then, then you are welcome to come. If you're here and that's not where you're at today, that is absolutely okay. In fact, we're so grateful that you are here. I encourage you just to allow this um, to be a moment that I hope will communicate what we have come to believe about Jesus and about, about who he is. You can just remain seated and allow this to be a moment of, of quiet and stillness as we come to, to the Lord's table. Uh, after I pray, um, I'll come and I'll set out the elements and uh, our worship team will play as you're ready. Um, you'll make your way to the center aisle. So come in this direction. Um, and I know this involves some like scooching over people and climbing over and um, that's okay. Uh, we're a big, big family here. So just do what you gotta do. Come out to the table. You make your way down. And when you get to the table, the elements will be waiting for you. And you can take the bread that Jesus gave his disciples and said, this is my body that I will give for you. And you can take the cup, which he said, this is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant that's been shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we, we carry these reminders with us. You can go back to your seat. You can take a moment to reflect. And as you're ready, you can receive the body and the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. And then we'll come and I'll, um, I'll conclude the service in, in just a few moments. If you, are, um, if you have limited mobility today, just know that our ushers are available. If you just kind of raise your hand, they will bring these elements to you uh, in your seat as, as well. So feel free to, to remain seated and you can get their attention and they will bring that to you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we do just thank you. We read in in John's gospel his passion and desire to introduce us, for us to understand the fullness of who you are. 
that you are the one who at creation itself was speaking the cosmos into being. That you are the God who desires to be present with, to be um, to, to live with, dwell among us. And he wants us to know you, to respond to you. And so God, as we come to your table this morning, remind us again of your great love. Remind us again of your ultimate purpose that would be realized through, through the cross and ultimately through an empty grave. Meet us at your table. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. John wants to introduce us to Jesus so that we can know him. He doesn't want us to get us wrong. He doesn't want us to misunderstand who he is. Uh, And in doing so, he calls him the word, the word who took on flesh. Before I offer this morning's benediction, um, two quick reminders is one, uh, if you have not yet grabbed a copy of the neighbor magazine that was put together, this is just an excellent um, guide through Advent. There's devotionals in here for, for each of kind of our focuses over these four weeks that I think you and your family will enjoy. There's ideas and fun things to do. There's great ways to connect in your neighborhood. So these are out in the lobby. I encourage you to grab one of these on your way out. And when you do so, <coughs> excuse me, grab one, uh, actually grab like five of these cards. Um, Christmas is uh, a time of year, uniquely, when people are open to invitation. And we want to be an inviting community. And so if you've got neighbors or friends, coworkers, whatever it is, um, invite them to join us. And Christmas Eve services are a great way to do that. Uh, this year, for our Christmas Eve services, we'll start on the 23rd. Uh, that's a Saturday. And so we'll do it at our normal 5 p.m. time. And it'll, it'll be just like our, our services on the 24th. And then the 24th, Christmas Eve this year, is actually a Sunday. And so we're going to do a service in the morning at 10 a.m. And then we have an afternoon service at, at 4 as well. And the thing I want you to know is we are asking you to register for these services. Um, not because we are, are... The goal in that is to help us know kind of how things are spreading out so that we can be as prepared as, as possible for our guests. So it's like if you register for a service and your plans change and family shows up and you come to a different one, like nobody's, nobody's checking at the door as you come in sort of thing. But if you would, we're, we're really trying to do this in a way that creates a positive experience for those who this might be the only time uh, they come and visit. So invite them, grab four or five, invite your friends uh, as well. And, and we're looking forward to celebrating that together. Would you stand with me and receive this morning's benediction? Our prayer team is available, as always. Uh, It's an honor and privilege to pray with you, as we talked about from from James chapter 5 last week. Our generosity boxes are by the doors as you leave. Uh, Again, whether that's giving to serve the world this Advent season or to a, a, a regular general fund, your generosity is making such an impact. And we're so grateful for all the ways that, that you partner with us for the sake of the gospel. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go in the name of Jesus Christ, who is in his person the fullness of God who has come to be with us so that we may know him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.